Now, Isaiah 61 is the foundational text for this year's prayer guide in the Evangelical Covenant Church. It is, of course, a messianic passage that promised God's people freedom when the Messiah would come. Freedom to rejoice, freedom to heal, freedom to rebuild, freedom to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, freedom for release of captives, as well as comfort and restoration despite the oppression that Israel had been experiencing. And like other years, the prayer guide has seven days of devotion that you can read one uh, devotion for each day of the week. And at the conclusion of each day's devotions, there's a short little prayer that you can pray, as well as however God burdens your heart to pray about the subject matter that's being talked about there. And the prayer guide is unique. It's along the lines of the only one like it that I can remember in my 45 years uh, being involved in this denomination. Two years ago, we had one that was written by by inmates who were enrolled in our denomination seminary's uh, School of Restorative Arts, and they wrote daily devotions and prayers. This year's prayer guide is called Free, and its focus is on women who have been sex trafficked, experiencing freedom in Christ, and having the opportunity to rebuild their lives. Each devotional is written by a woman who works in a ministry that reaches out and ministers to sex-trafficked women and young girls. And some of these women who are leading these ministries were formerly sex-trafficked themselves. So they long to have others discover the freedom that they have found in Christ. Well, we're going to talk more about that in just a few moments, but allow me to set the context here in Luke chapter 4. Jesus has begun his ministry, and in so doing, he returns to his hometown of Nazareth. Let me read verses 14 to 17. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Jesus is a devout Jewish man who is garnering a reputation as a teacher and a miracle worker. And those gathered in the synagogue at Nazareth, though, struggled with what Jesus just said here. We'll pick it up in verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they said? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself and you will tell me. Do here in your hometown what we heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All people in the synagogue were furious 
when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. These folks here who had watched Jesus grow up, they asked themselves a question. Isn't this Joseph's son? And they wanted, and they even demanded proof of what he was saying here. Proof of his divinity. Now the portion of what Jesus said here that is important for us to grasp is that Jesus actually read a very short portion of the Old Testament scriptures from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And for a synagogue reading back then, that was a very compressed thing to do. He also stopped abruptly with proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, breaking right off in the middle of the verse. He didn't read the second half of that verse in the day of vengeance of our God. Why didn't Jesus finish the sentence? Especially since the nation of Israel was longing for a victorious, militant Messiah to come and restore Israel to the nation's former glory that it had under their former king, David. And, of course, the Messiah was going to be a king in the Davidic line. So it would be natural for Israel to want their independence back and to be delivered from the oppressive hand of the Romans. And for those of us on the outside of the cross... This side of the cross, it's easy for us to see Jesus coming in a two-act drama. The first coming offering salvation and his second coming bringing judgment. But in the Old Testament times, the time of Christ and the Israelites anticipated salvation and judgment coming as one, one and the same. So when Jesus offered only freedom and salvation, and wouldn't do any miracles in his hometown. And then he explains himself. He, to do that, he uses two examples of the great prophets, Elijah and Elisha, saying there's a lot of work that they could have been doing in Israel, but God had them minister in miraculous ways to foreigners. And of course, he gives the famous line, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And all of this proved to be too much for them. So they tried to pitch Jesus over a cliff on the edge of town. Now please listen carefully to what Jesus said here and listen carefully to what Jesus did not say here in Luke chapter 4. And to help explain this, let me share some gospel verses from the gospel of John. John three sixteen and 17, first of all, very familiar to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. For Listen to this now. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved, or the world would be saved through him. Okay? So we get the notion here Jesus came. That first coming was for salvation, it wasn't for judgment. Listen to John chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. Jesus speaking here. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them on the last day. Okay? Judgment's coming, but it's the last day. And Christ's first coming ushered in the acceptable year of the Lord, meaning both the space and time was there for salvation. Paul said as much. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the end of that verse, 2, he said, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day 
of God's salvation. We live in this present day right now of God's patience and God's grace. God is holding back his judgment while offering full amnesty to people's rebellious hearts. Yes, when the time appointed by God arrives, the day of vengeance, the day of judgment will come. So please understand that right now we live in this era, this period of freedom. Now we're going to look at a very important text today. You just have to flip a few pages over to Luke chapter 7 verses uh, 36 through 39 and we're going to see an actual lived out account of what Jesus said was fulfilled in Luke chapter 4. It says here, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to set his feet, wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now this is the account of an unwanted visitor who uh, crashes a dinner party where Jesus happens to be the primary guest. And the visitor, of course, was a prostitute. A lady of the evening, as my mother used to say. Times haven't changed much in, in terms of how people view prostitutes, have they? Most women tend to be held in contempt, or most women tend to hold in contempt, while many men view uh, prostitutes a little bit differently, as maybe objects of transactions or judge them or, or both. But if you think I'm wrong on this, that, that, that uh, you know, women are still viewed like they were back then uh, who are prostitutes, if you think I'm wrong on this, Consider the modern-day plague of pornography. Right now, one-fifth of users of porn are women, but most women are disgusted by pornography. A small minority of men are equally disturbed by it, while the majority of men are just like, eh, yeah, you know. And by the way, porn is the, modern, the world's modern-day modern world's biggest form of prostitution because it is payment. For sexual activity. And any of you men or guys out there using porn know this. There are plenty of sex trafficked women on porn sites. So if you're using these things, if you're viewing these things, this material, thinking you're doing it in the privacy of your home or your bedroom or bathroom or wherever you're doing that, it's not as innocent as you might think it is. Women are being sold as sex objects, sometimes even by their own families. It's really, truly a modern-day form of slavery. See, not everybody involved in the sex trade is a willing participant. And I should also mention that the porn industry is driven by greed. So by participating, you're not only supporting uh, uh, you know, sex trafficking, but you're also supporting another vice that God is not very keen on. In fact, God calls it in his word one of the de seven deadly sins. Greed, the cousin of lust. 
You know, in, Romania, in 1990, I went to Romania on a missions trip, and we were there 16 days in Eastern Europe. And when we arrived at Bucharest, every place we had gone to, we had places set up where we could stay with people in their homes. But our housing fell through when we got to the capital city of Bucharest, and we couldn't really find a hotel. We ended up at the International Hotel, which was actually a very nice facility compared to the rest of Eastern Europe. So it was the, a good place to stay in that sense, but it was very expensive. $150 a night back in 1990. And they did have bellhops, which of course was completely uh, not in the culture there. But these bellhops were so willing to help us, Westerners, and of course, you know, they were thinking they're going to get big tips from us, which we did tip them. But they wanted to know if we needed anything else. And even they mentioned women. Do you want women? And of course, they're looking at it that you have Western travelers in this high-end hotel in Romania, their opportunity to cash in on some sex-trafficked women. Now, now all these people have to do is get people to use the internet in the West to participate. You don't have to travel there and go to one of their hotels. You simply just got to log in online and do that, including many Christian men, women, and young adults and teens that are doing that. Well, back to our text. In most cases, desperation drives someone to sell their body to survive. Many feel trapped, powerless, or without options to improve their life. In Jesus' day, if a young woman became a prostitute, it was only because she was desperate beyond measure. She would have seen no other options. Perhaps she was a single mother, afraid that her children were going to go hungry. Most prostitutes back in the first century were slaves. They were people who had already been used and abused in the Roman Empire. People who had no way out. People who had been taken advantage of their entire lives. And they had little or no self-worth. And then this woman encounters Jesus. And she breaks this expansive jar of perfume, an alabaster jar of perfume, a one year's worth of wages. Imagine that. And Mark's account of this tells us that people there were really upset about that, that what a waste, that she pours this over Jesus, you know, uh, uh, a year's worth of wages symbolizing her life, that, that, that it was wasted and pours it over Jesus, the anointed one, who is going to save her and set her free from her sins. And people are saying, what a waste. That should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Here's a woman who encounters the one who came to proclaim the good news. The one who loves her unconditionally when all she'd ever known in her life was abuse. Jesus treats her with dignity and respect. And he acknowledges her and honors her when all others wanted to do was to just heap shame upon her. Here's a woman who felt unworthy, kneeling and weeping before Jesus, you know, wiping her, 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 his feet with her, with her hair because of the tears that were falling. And he shows to her that she has value. Yes, yes, she was guilty of sin, and Jesus offered her grace. And brothers and sisters in Christ, I have to tell you, it is not hard to understand how the early church just blew up and thrived, and how it was primarily filled up with, in those first number of centuries, with women and slaves, because it was the only place in the culture where they could find freedom. Now, I'm asking you this week to remember this biblical account of Jesus's offer of mercy, grace, and salvation to this hurting woman. As you use the prayer guide, 
Set aside any notions that you may have of judgment toward those who are coming out of the sex trade. Any biases that you might have against the poor. Well, poor people just should go get a job. There's all kinds of jobs out there. They should work like I've had to work my whole life. Set aside any of those biases that you may have, any prejudice that you might have toward prisoners, even though our culture is reeling right now uh, with so many getting their get-out-of-jail-free cards. Again, a reminder. Here's what Jesus said. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Yes, that's physically poor, and I have to tell you, we need to do our part to help people out who are physically poor, like so many people did just last weekend here in the, in the village of Poplar when, when uh, there was a homeless man that showed up here. I was so blessed and so proud of people in our church who responded and helped out and, and fed this gentleman and, and got him where he needed to go, and it was such a blessing to see. But you know, people are also spiritually poor. They need to be set free by the good news of Jesus Christ to live the life that God intended for them to live. And it might be, as Aaron shared, a one-time encounter in an empty cafeteria up in northeastern Minnesota. We don't know. But they need to be set free to live the life God intended for them. And by the way, it says here, uh, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. You know what that literally means? People that have been taken by spear point. There's a spear in their back. These are the prisoners of war. These are the slaves. These are the people that have been forced into the life that they're now living. That's what Jesus came to do. People who are, and, and we live in a world where people are prisoners of all kinds of things, of sinful behaviors, addictions, drugs, alcohol, gambling, sexual addictions, addictions, various you know, addictions related to money and wealth and greed, and it's the spear in the back that's prodding people forward. And it says here, too, to recovery of sight to the blind. Yes, that's messianic. And Jesus fulfilled that to the T. He healed people who were blind and some who had been born blind. It, it, was, it was the proof that he was the Christ. But you know, there's a lot of spiritually blind people in this world, too. People who need clear-minded gracious, compassionate Christians to come alongside them with the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word to help them see. Brothers and sisters in Christ, prayer is a big part of all that. And we're, where we are going to be praying is for people to come to faith in Christ and praying for their lives to be transformed, for people to be set free. And you know, I need to offer up a word of pastoral concern here. You know, there's, a, there's plenty of people today in the church of Jesus Christ who I think are repeating the error of Israel in the first century by longing for miraculous physical miracles. Do I believe in miracles? Oh, yes. You know, do I like to see God work miraculous? Oh, yes, wholeheartedly. Uh, but, but there's a concern here and a caution I offer. Some Christians constantly seek something visible, something spectacular, something that is clearly supernatural. And what is sad is we would rather see bread multiplied or water turned into wine than to see the inner transformation of someone's life to become Christ-like. Somehow walking on water seems more like us to, to, to be a miracle to us than the deliverance of the human soul from the darkness of their personal sin. 
Jesus came to the people of Nazareth, fulfilling ancient prophecies right before their very eyes. But they didn't want to see liberated lives. They wanted to see a miracle show. The very same Jesus who went to Nazareth is here now, actively extending his grace through his church. And Jesus isn't, isn't off in some remote corner of the universe, detached from all of us. He hasn't left us here on this planet to flounder and struggle until he comes back again. He's alive, and he's at work. And you know when he gave us our marching orders in the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, he said, go and make disciples of all the nations, all these people. He concluded it by saying, and behold, I'm with you always, even until the very end of the age. This week, let's pray with grace in our hearts for the hurting, the oppressed, the abused, and the sex trafficked of this world. And let's remember that biblically, miracles come after we believe when we truly need them and ask for them, but it's always on God's terms and in His timing, not ours. As we've seen from our text today, demanding miracles never works. And above all, let's not prejudge sinners that Jesus came to save. Or perhaps a better way to say this is let's prayerfully avoid throwing people off cliffs, even if they disappoint us. May God bless his proclaimed word to our hearts today. Amen.